Hello world, I'm Ethan Hansen, and this is Quantum Computing Now, a podcast about quantum computing basics, news, and interviews. This type of episode is the main type now. It's a longer form interview in which I also discuss an interesting topic and some news in quantum computing with my interview guest. I'm calling it a hybrid episode. In this episode, I sat down with Peter Johnson, who leads the research team at Zapata Computing. We spent the majority of the time talking about a recent paper they released about estimation, VQE, and likelihood functions. It does get a little technical at points, but Peter did a really great job keeping it accessible with analogies, something that we share love for. Take it away, me, but in recording. So I have with me today Peter Johnson who is one of the founders at Zapata Computing. Uh, Peter, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Ethan. Awesome. So um, before we dive into what's going on at Zapata, I know that there was a paper that was recently released. Um, I definitely want to talk about that and VQE in general. Could you give us a bit of background about what you did before getting into quantum? Wow, sure. Um, So I studied physics in undergrad at Kenyon College, a small liberal arts um, school. And I was interested in cosmology a little bit, definitely interested in math. Um, But then I had the good fortune of my advisor in undergrad being one of the early um, founders of the field of quantum information. So his name is Benjamin Schumacher. Okay. Um, And so, you know, he really changed my course going from, I would say, more um, like big scale physics, thinking about uh, cosmology. Right. To more microscopic quantum. Interesting. Um, Yeah. And actually, this, you know, this will probably... Um, come up a bit later, but he was the one who introduced me to the concept of quantum entanglement. Okay. And it was really this uh, curiosity about this concept, wanting to understand like, hey, what's what's really going on under the hood here Yeah, that has, I would say, continued to uh, push me to try to understand quantum computing yeah so after graduating from undergrad i then um, went to graduate school at dartmouth college and continued um, trying to learn about quantum entanglement Um, and so it was my advisor there lorenza viola uh, who pushed me to transition from um, these more mathematical questions about quantum entanglement to thinking more about quantum computing. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, so you said David Schumacher was one of the like the founders of the field of quantum information. Um, I'm not familiar with his work. Um, what What in particular did he work on? Yeah, so Ben Schumacher. Um, So he, uh, in graduate school, was thinking about quantum systems as being um, uh, 
I, I guess, purveyors of information. Um, so trying to investigate like, hey, if you were using a quantum system, like information stored in an atom to communicate, um, what are the limitations on that process? Interesting. And so in this, uh, in this spirit, he, uh, along with some others, coined the term qubit. Uh, to refer to as a to refer to a unit of information in uh, a quantum system, um, and proved a number of properties about qubits as um, information processing units. Interesting. Um, is that work related to? I know that there are um, there are theorems in like classical computing about the the amount of information needed to send on like a noisy versus a noiseless channel is that no yeah like exactly okay exactly yeah um so thinking about like how much uh so actually the the concept of um compressing information um as it's transmitted via a qubit is um, uh, something that Ben explored, and uh, it now goes by the name of Schumacher compression. Interesting. And I I guess I don't know how that would work, because like with classical compression, you're going to look at all of the all of the bits and their states. Um, and you're you'll have a some way of encoding it. So like maybe instead of writing a bunch of zeros, it's like zero times four. Um, but in any case, you've got to actually measure those states and you've got to then duplicate them, both of which you can't really do with a quantum state most of the time. Um, how how does that work with quantum information compression? Right. Um, okay, so uh, it turns out that a single qubit... Um, can at best store a single bit of information. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, let's see. You may ha- you may have caught me on something that I <laughs> I'm not prepared to explain well. Yeah, no, that's okay. Um, the concept I... of Schumacher express compression. Throwing you a bit of a curveball here. <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, so. Yeah, I would say uh, I don't don't have a great um, explanation for how this how this goes down. Okay, that's okay. I'll I definitely want to look into that more though. I'll put it on my list of uh, topics to talk about in future episodes. But yeah, something that you are more of an expert on uh, is VQE, right? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So VQE is one of the sort of hot topics in quantum right now um and of course it it stands for variational quantum eigensolver could you break Mm -hmm. that down word by word (laughs) okay sure sure um so the the problem that this algorithm is trying to solve is to estimate the ground state energy of say a molecule okay um, 
And so before quantum computing, people have been considering this problem. This is like a, a, a longstanding problem in uh, material science and quantum chemistry. Yeah. And um, I don't know, probably in the 30s, 20s, 30s, 40s, um, a method was invented called the Ritz method, um, where one proposes a description of a molecule um, that is um, easy to easy to describe and easy to compute the energy of. Hmm. Okay. And um, one then optimizes the parameters of that uh, specific description to see what the minimum energy out of those configurations um, is. Okay. And so this is, uh, this is known as the variational method. Mm-hmm. So by, uh, by the fact that no, no uh, configuration can have an energy lower than the ground state energy. Right. Then any energy um, that you uh, come up with from a configuration is a um, gives a bound mm-hmm. um, on what the ground state energy is. You and know, it- ground state energy won't be greater than that value. Okay. I was just going to ask: uh, Is it an upper bound or a lower bound? But upper bound, yeah. Okay. Right. Right. Um, so this variational method um, is probably uh, widely used uh, or used outside of quantum chemistry. Um, But in the context of quantum computing, um, in, I guess it was in 2013, um, actually some some folks from the Spurugusic group where I did a postdoc uh, developed a method for using a quantum computer much like you would use those uh, classically describable uh, wave functions in the variational principle. Hmm. Um, and so the idea is pretty straightforward. It's that on the quantum computer, you uh, propose a class of wave functions that you're able to prepare. Okay. So these these are described by the circuit, which is preparing the quantum state. Okay. And so with this class of quantum states that you can prepare, um, you then measure the energy or estimate the energy of each of those with respect to the um, uh, description of the molecule. Mm-hmm. And then just like people would do with these, uh, the classical variational principle, you tune the parameters of this circuit um, to search for the lowest um, energy that you can find. Okay. Hmm. So in the quantum case, it's also uh, using this variational principle and the uh, minimum energy that's found is taken as an estimate for the ground state energy with the okay. promise 
that the ground state energy is not greater than it. Interesting. And so then, actually, a couple questions came up. Um, when you say description of the molecule, is that the word Hamiltonian that I see all the time, but I don't quite understand what it means? Yeah, exactly. Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, yeah. So then, um, so you're saying that the the circuit that you create will sort of um, will describe your quantum wave function. Mm -hmm. uh, so then that circuit as, uh, is another name for that is onsots, right? Right, right. Okay. okay. So putting it all together, um, the variational part is it comes from an older method of um, tweaking parameters. Uh, in, in, in this case, it's an onsots. Mm -hmm. um, which is your sort of tunable circuit. Um, so yeah, you're varying your parameters in the onsots, and the quantum refers to the fact that you're doing this using a you're using that to create a quantum wave function, and then mm -hmm. the eigensolver is you're finding the um, you're solving for these last uh, this ground state energy. Um, right. Okay. Which is one of the eigen it's the minimum eigenvalue okay so, yeah, so i guess in the in the like mathematical world you have hamiltonian and minimum eigenvalue then in the um, physical world you have uh, molecule and ground state energy yeah okay and then the how do you get out of this this quantum wave function which you're going to measure, I assume. Um, how do you get that eigenvalue? Right. Or how do you... Um, so um, during, the opt during the procedure of trying to tune those parameters um, for any configuration, uh, what you can estimate is the, uh, what we call the expected energy. Okay of that um, with respect to that wave function. So maybe is the question like, how do you get that estimate of the energy? Yeah, I, I guess, how do you go from quantum, uh, you've got quantum information inside of your wave function in your circuit. How do you get that back out into classical so you can run this optimization loop again? Right, okay. Yeah, and I, I feel like I feel like you're getting at an important um, concept in quantum computing, which is that the outputs of however you use the quantum computation are classical information. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that I feel like that's um, okay. An important concept. But then, how do you do that? Um, it's it's like a little. Um, I don't know, boring and technical, maybe, you know, I, I, I find it interesting. Yeah. Um, and there are many, many different proposals for how, um, for how to do that. Okay. Interesting. Um, but the, uh, the gist of it, um, is that the Hamiltonian, um, or I should say the energy estimation 
um, is broken down into a sum of estimations of other quantities, which we call expectation values. Hmm. Okay. And so, uh, you know, I kind of like pulled the wool over your eyes earlier (laughs) when I said, oh yeah, and then you just measure the energy. Yeah. Um, So it, it turns out that that process of measuring or, okay, measure might be a misnomer. Estimate might be a better a better term. Okay. That process of estimating the expected energy um, is composed of many smaller estimation tasks or many other estimation tasks. Okay, interesting. Um, yeah, maybe I can give an analogy. Awesome, yeah. Okay, so I guess the, the analogy would be um, hey, Ethan, I have this um, quarter and this penny. Okay. And um, I want you to, uh, so the quarter, it has some um, unknown bias. It's not a 50-50 coin flip. Okay. And same thing of this penny. Mm. And I want you to give me an estimate of the difference between say, their probabilities of heads. Mm, Okay. So, for example, if the quarter turned out to be uh, 75% of the time it flipped to heads and the penny turned out to be a quarter of the time it flipped Mm -hmm. to heads, then the difference in those likelihoods would be a half. Yeah. Okay. Okay. but say I just posed this problem to you and I didn't, I didn't give you the answer ahead of time. Um, what would you do? You'd start flipping. <laughs> you better start, start flipping yesterday. Yeah. yeah. Just flip over and over and you get a better and better estimate of what the actual, um, the actual probability of flipping heads on each is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And so um, the energy estimate is analogous to that difference between these two like sub estimates. Interesting. Um, yeah. And so on the quantum computer, each time you prepare that onsat circuit, you then have a choice. Okay, do I want to get some information about the quarter? Or do I want to get some information about the likelihood of heads for the penny? Okay. Um, and, you know, after you do many, many trials, you then um, have built up enough uh, of a sample size to give a, a decent estimate for, um, for the expected energy, or in this example, the difference between those likelihoods. Right, yeah. Okay, interesting. And so then this, I think, touches a bit on your work with uh, the new paper that Zabata released. Yeah. Uh, it's about sort of optimizing the number of times that you have to flip that coin. Um, is that is that maybe a, is that a good overview of it? And maybe you can dive into that a bit more. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's like a, that's a great overview. Like how many, how many times do you have to flip this coin? Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, we, you know, this uh, variational quantum eigensolver method uh, came from the, the group that Zapata was founded out of. So we hold this, this method um, near and dear to our hearts. Yeah. Um, and a part of, um, you know, one thing we're very interested in is understanding how feasible this method is for solving practical problems. Mm-hmm. You know, so I don't know, Ethan, you have some, um, some uh, molecules that you want to predict the uh, binding rates of. Doesn't everyone? Yeah. <laughs> I got a few right here. Um, and the question is, would this variational quantum eigensolver algorithm um, be able to outperform these like super fast, super impressive classical methods. Right. Right. It's kind of like, it's kind of like you're going, going up against this, like, you know, huge uh, industry. Mm-hmm. These, you know, these little, um, it's a, a little bit of a David and Goliath <laughs> situation. Um, so in order to answer that question, you have to start uh, accounting for, the time that it takes um, for one to carry out this uh, tuning of the parameters, right? That also takes some, some time. Right. Um, But also the time that it takes to build up these estimates of the energy. Hmm. Um, And so, yeah, you can imagine that um, in both the, uh, classical methods and the quantum methods, um, as you spend more time on these algorithms, you hope that you're getting um, better and better estimates of the energy. Right. But but the question is, well, who is going to um, win the race to reach, say, like um, a target accuracy first? Yeah. Um. So yeah, is the is that setup clear? Oh yeah, definitely. And so when you say target accuracy, is that like a like a confidence level, um, like within these two numbers plus or minus, or uh, within these two numbers with ninety five percent confidence? Is that sort of what you're talking about? Right. So um, I guess this uh, this accuracy they refer to this as chemical accuracy in the in the case of these molecules Mm -hmm. is how far away are you from the true ground state energy Hmm. how far away is your estimate and so this is this is hard to know um you know once you once you kind of like have left the nest and um you don't have any uh sense of what the true value is then you know, for those types of problems, you actually will never know if you're within this chemical accuracy threshold. Right. But um, you can know when you're not within that threshold. For example, if you've taken too few samples in the in the uh, VQE algorithm, mm-hmm. so that your confidence in your guess is uh, wider than that accuracy, then you won't um, have much confidence that your estimate is close to this chemical accuracy. Okay. 
Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like when I uh, hand you the quarter and I say, okay, Ethan, give me the estimate of the likelihood of heads to within, you know, a 10th of a percent, Mm -hmm. but you only flip the coin twice. Yeah. Right. Right. You're not going to, um, you probably wouldn't be within that, uh, within a close accuracy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So with this setup, then the, a big question that we're after is what are the resources needed, um, for a quantum computer to be able to, uh, win this race to chemical accuracy for a useful problem? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, one, okay, well, what could, uh, how do we account for uh, that time? Well, it's very, it's very hard to predict because there are, um, you know, so many different methods that you can use for just the energy estimation part. Right. And there are so many different methods that you could use for the parameter tuning or optimization part. Hmm. So it's pretty overwhelming to try to explore that whole landscape and feel confident that your uh, predictions are state of the art. Yeah. And real fast, when you say different ways of um, optimizing or parameter tuning, it's you use like classical optimization methods for that, right? So like when you're playing mm-hmm. with TensorFlow and you've got all of those different potential optimizers, that's that's what you're talking about? Right. Like there are like tons of just off the shelf optimizers. Um, yeah. You know, the SciPy optimize uh, library. Okay. Um, for example. Yeah. Yeah. So I can see how there's a lot of potential different moving parts inside of this. Right. And then even with just these off the shelf, there still are a lot of questions about. Um, uh, you know, even with using those methods, um, some little like, I don't know, quantum spice that you can uh, <laughs> throw on in terms of like, I don't know, deciding how to allocate resources throughout the optimization procedure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's a pretty over- overwhelming problem. Um, I guess this is a good opportunity to make an orchestra plug. Um, <laughs> At Zapata, we have been making great use of our um, our tool Orchestra to help organize um, these types of explorations. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so um, back to this race to chemical accuracy. Definitely. So um, what might be, or I guess the fr- a first question is like, okay, well, how do you, how might you account for the time that the quantum computer will take um, to arrive at chemical accuracy. Mm. So one, one thing that contributes to this time is the time spent taking all of these samples to build up these estimates, like in the, the example, the difference between the likelihood of heads for the quarter and the penny. Mm-hmm. And I would think that that would just knowing how many times you have to do that would be a good estimator overall 
because um, every time that you, I, I guess, it would be proportional if, let's say, each time you run the loop, you have an extra, uh, making up a number, 0.3 seconds of overhead from your optimization. If you're running the loop 10 more times, it's, you know, uh, three seconds extra uh, versus, you know, changing each um, each parameter or sorry, changing your optimization or how you're building up these estimates could have a, a, a potentially more unpredictable effect. So am I, am I onto something there? Does that make any sense? Yeah. So um, certainly if you, um, well, yeah, if you, if you improve the estimation scheme, mm-hmm. then, uh, you know, maybe you like, cut the time in half for, um, for example, cut the time in half for building up uh, an estimate to within a um, certain accuracy. Okay. Then this would, this would cut down on the um, overall VQE runtime. But as you say, it can be pretty complicated to predict how, how exactly that, uh, that would translate. Right. Okay. But for sure, if you cut down on that, um, the time needed to reach a certain estimate, mm-hmm. then it will reduce the runtime of the algorithm. Yeah. Okay. So it can't hurt you. <laughs> Definitely. Um, yeah. So, um, so one potential bottleneck for the VQE algorithm is that it might be the case that in order to um, reach the same accuracy as a um, a classical method, um, it will require too many samples. Um, and so the overall runtime of the variational quantum eigensolver algorithm would be much longer than the classical method. Mm-hmm. So this is one worry that we have. So a, a question we've been grappling with is, is there any hope for improving upon that? Um, And so I should say like, yes, there definitely is. Um, And, you know, I guess this is like one of the oldest tricks in the quantum algorithms (laughs) book. Um, But it's this, this uh, quantum phase estimation algorithm. (laughs) Um, So yeah, this was, this was the method that um, Alan Aspurugusik uh, was exploring uh, to solve quantum chemistry problems. Okay. Back in, I guess, the mid 2000s. Hmm. And it was originally developed by uh, Kitaev. I guess Seth Lloyd um, made some progress on this. Um, it's actually uh, related to Shor's algorithm. Okay. Um, and so this phase estimation algorithm can uh, estimate energies at a much faster rate than um, we would be able to do with this kind of like slow VQ, standard VQE scheme that mm. involves coin flipping. Okay. Um, but you can probably guess what the, what the downside of this phase estimation algorithm is. Yeah, no free lunch theorem. So if you've got a, if it's moving faster, 
I guess maybe more noise, more errors. Yeah, so definitely, definitely more error overall. And the the reason is that in order to carry out that algorithm, it requires very deep quantum circuits. Got it. And so, you know, if there's some probability of error with each operation that you do on the quantum computer, yep. then as you do more operations before uh, a final measurement, then you've accrued much more error. Um, than if you ran a shorter depth circuit. Yeah, makes sense. So in VQE, the uh, the depth cost simply comes from, for the most part, this onsot circuit that you propose. Okay. Um, but in this quantum phase estimation algorithm, the you're actually needing to uh, implement. Uh, evolution under the Hamiltonian for different lengths of time. And the circuits required to do that can be very, very deep compared to uh, the onsot circuit. Hmm. Okay. Are, are we talking like orders of magnitude, twice as much, or does it just depend entirely on what application you're using it for? Yeah, definitely, definitely many orders of magnitude. But okay. The, Depends on the specifics of the onsots and of the Hamiltonian. Yeah. Um, but enough to put it uh, out of range for um, solving useful, useful problems in the near term. Right. Okay. Um, so it seems like, you know, we have these two ends, these two extremes. Um, one extreme being VQE is, can be carried out on today's devices, mm -hmm. but it might be too slow. On the other end of the extreme, we have this very fast quantum phase estimation. The downside is that we're not able to implement that on near-term devices. Right. Um, the hope is that um, in the long term, quantum computers are made to be fault tolerant. Mm-hmm. Uh, by using techniques uh, from quantum error correction. And this would eventually enable you to, to carry out very deep quantum circuits so that you could um, solve these ground state energy problems. And, you know, maybe they it would end up crushing these classical methods. Yeah. But, but we're not there yet. Right. Um, so you can probably imagine the question that we've been asking ourselves, which is like, okay, faced with these two extremes, is there some way to find a happy medium between them? Mm -hmm. You know, find some method which is a little bit faster than VQE, but it doesn't require as deep of quantum circuits as quantum phase estimation does. Mm-hmm. So uh, while trying to look through the literature for ideas in this, uh, in this direction, we, we came across some really great work um, by Dao Chen Wang, Oscar Higgett, and Steve Brierley, uh, which they called Alpha VQE. Hmm. And so the idea was, if you have um, a 
quantum circuit, or if you have a quantum computer, which can only run quantum circuits up to a, a certain depth, um, then what is the uh, performance that you can eke out um, in this estimation task? Okay. Um, and they showed a way to, you know, as you change the available uh, depth, how you could interpolate between these two extremes. Mm. So we were really excited by this idea um, and seemed like it, it hadn't gotten the attention that it deserved. <laughs> um, so the question that we tried to answer then was, okay, if you take this, um, uh, these ideas that they're proposing, um, but you try to uh, formulate it in a more realistic setting, a setting where uh, there's not just an artificial limit to the depth of the quantum circuit, but instead you account for the noise that's actually um, occurring during the operation mm. um, of a quantum circuit. Then how do you how do you strike this uh, balance between these two extremes? Interesting. So the earlier work with alpha VQE was you've got a hard stop limit at something like a, a gate depth of 250 or something like that. Whereas your work is more, um, we don't really have a hard stop limit, but we have this certain error rate and we want to avoid getting junk results by running it for too long. Right, exactly. Okay. So yeah, with this hard stop limit approach, it's assumed that the quantum computer works perfectly up until this point. Mm. Um, so yeah, this is, this is the, um, question which led us to develop this, um, this paper, um, uh, including this engineered likelihood function method. Okay. Um, and so the, the, uh, key observation that we had was that, um, after you have come up with a model to take into account the noise, um, that just carrying out the standard method as proposed previously um, can actually fail pretty badly hmm. in in certain cases. And hmm. so, uh, why does okay. why does it, why does it fail so badly? Just because you get junk results. Um. So. Um, I guess, yeah, one way to describe why it, why it fails badly, um, is that, um, there are, okay, certain likelihoods of heads for the coin. Okay. Um, where if you were to introduce a little bit of noise into, you know, running these circuits, um, the rate at which you're able to get information about that parameter is drastically reduced. Hmm. Um, okay. So it's like a little technical how that actually occurs. Um, but I, I guess I can, it might be worth uh, explaining the, the intuition behind this engineering likelihood function 
method. Definitely. Yeah. So, um, okay. One, one thing to picture is the going back to this example of the quarters. Okay. So, you know, you, you came up with the, the right strategy, which was to just flip it a bunch of times. And I'm imagining you're picturing that you, you then take the fraction of heads that you received mm-hmm. and you use that as the estimate for the likelihood of heads. Right. Um, so in that case, um, if, you know, some demon came in and changed the true likelihood of heads, maybe they changed it from that 75% down to the I don't know, 72%. Okay. You, Ethan, as you're doing your flipping, you would find a change in the observed rate of uh, the heads that you're getting out. Mm. You know, it would be like if you flipped uh, 100 million, it would go from being somewhere around 75 million to somewhere around 72 million. Yeah. Um, but with this, um, this technique, which is allowing for this interpolation between the, uh, standard sampling in VQE and this like phase estimation approach, Mm -hmm. um, what you're doing like under the hood is that you're changing that sensitivity, uh, that dependence that I was just talking about. So now what happens is that if this demon comes in and uh, changes the likelihood, the true likelihood from 75% to 72%, you've engineered up this relationship such that there will be a big change in the observed rate. Hmm. So you've designed this, um, this sampling scheme so that a little change like that will will cause the rate at which you find heads to be, say, dropping from 75 down to like 15%. Interesting. Okay. So this lets you kind of zoom in on that window between 72% and 75%. Um, so your the rate at which you're um, finding heads depends more sensitively on the true value. Interesting. Okay. Um, yeah. So, um, I guess what we've found with this method, um, is that even through the introduction of some error, it's possible to, uh, still dramatically enhance um, the performance of this estimation subroutine. So what we're really excited about is that it seems like even on near-term devices, you might be able to go a little bit past uh, what's done in VQE um, to boost um, the performance of this estimation subroutine. Interesting. Okay. 
I'm not entirely clear on how the engineering or engineered likelihood function helps do that. Um, are you are, when you're using the engineered likelihood function? Is it a oh we've seen a drastic decrease in our rate of heads in the uh, analogy, therefore we need to um, pull back a bit on how aggressive we are with um, using the uh, like the alpha VQE over standard sampling is. Mm, okay. Yeah. Great. Great question. Okay. Um, so I would say that as you're as you're collecting samples, um, before you collect each sample, you're able to account for your current state of knowledge, like okay. what your current best guess is and how confident you are with that guess. And with those in mind. It's possible to then uh, choose the structure of the quantum circuit, which is generating the sample. Okay. So that you are, um, you have the highest chances of um, improving your confidence. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. So in the analogy, sort of a you know what's happening and you're using this engineered likelihood function to watch for changes so that um, maybe the demon is using like a leaf blower in a specific location to change how the coin flips. So you can change how you're flipping it with your hand in order to get a more accurate result. Um, I feel like there's probably some way to make that analogy work. <laughs> I'm a sucker for analogies like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, and if we can step back from the technical a bit, because my head's spinning. Um, Zapata, Zapata released a, like a paper reveal video, which was awesome. I loved that. Um, why why was that? And uh, did you enjoy being a part of that process? <laughs> um, well, I guess did I enjoy it? Yeah, that it was it was it was really fun to do. Um, so. We had a lot of help from uh, uh, the marketing team at Zapata, Catherine and Maria, uh-huh. and their their goal was just like, hey, you know, we're all stuck at at home right now, working for Zapata. Um, you know, can we just like create some fun? Um, and so we just tried to not take ourselves too too seriously, and nice. um, you know do something fun in a socially distanced, responsible way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, put Peter's bad acting skills on display. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Do you think that that's going to be maybe a theme now uh, with other big paper reveals? You hope to start a trend? Peter's bad acting skills? Yeah, <laughs> I think that will be a trend. <laughs> um I know, you know, this is, this is something that we, um, you know, haven't really seen in the community. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, we really value, uh, attempting to communicate what we're working on, um, so that more people can, can appreciate what's going on with quantum computing. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, we'll see, we'll see 
how, uh, you know, people keep responding to these things. But I think so far, people seem to have enjoyed uh, <laughs> watching it. And, um, you know, we hope that it, it uh, you know, at least gets people, you know, to then check out some of the science. Right, yeah. So maybe we, we think of it as like a, you know, the the first step in the funnel. Yeah. Yeah, it, I remember the first time I saw it, I remember saying that it reminded me of in robotics, we have robot reveal videos, sort of a, a paper reveal video that sort of gets you into the into the zone to look at the actual technical aspects of the paper or in the case of robotics, the robot. Yeah. So right. Cool. Right. That's- yeah. No, I mean, the hope is that, um, you know, by trying to put some uh, some technical concepts in like a more fun light, mm-hmm. maybe it, maybe it, uh, you know, causes somebody to have an interesting thought about how you might be able to even um, build upon what we did. Yeah. Yeah. And that, uh, do you know of any work? I, I know it wasn't released very uh, or that long ago, but do you know of any work that has uh, referenced it or talked about its its merits? Um, yeah, so so certainly there have been a few papers that have uh, referenced this work. Okay. Um, you know, probably in part because this is um, currently a very hot topic of trying to understand the influence of error on quantum algorithms right and also this quantum amplitude estimation um, algorithm uh, has application not only in quantum chemistry but also in uh, finance Hmm. Um, it seems like uh, people thinking about quantum algorithms for finance have found uh, some use from these ideas yeah so yeah we're hopeful that um you know, this can um, encourage even more work building off of this. Yeah. And sorry, um, you said you talk about VQE with chemistry a lot. Um, is there any cross, I guess, cross pollination where you can use the ideas from VQE in other applications, like optimization of certain functions in general? Yeah. Um so I think quite a, quite a few groups have been exploring, for example, um, using a variant of VQE to solve the uh, least squares um, problem. I think some some work from Los Alamos was looking at this. Okay. And then uh, a, uh, a cousin, maybe a sibling, I don't know, <laughs> of VQE called QAOA, mm-hmm. the Maybe, I don't know, maybe it's currently called quantum alternating operator onsets or quantum approximate optimization algorithm. Yeah. Um, that uses methods, um, you know, this classical optimization subroutine, um, very much like VQE does. Okay, interesting. So it's, it's almost like they're both part of this class of um, quantum optimization algorithms. And then VQE is pretty much specifically for chemistry. Um, yeah, I would say like uh, chemistry or materials, Hamiltonians. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. 
so um, I, I don't have a transition for this. Um, but another thing we wanted to talk about was um, the work of David Poulon, who um, recently passed away, unfortunately. Um, and I guess, yeah, tell me, I, I've been in the field for, you know, a year now, um, so I'm not super familiar with the work. Uh, do you want to tell me a bit about the legacy that he, he leaves behind? Sure. Um, yeah, so uh, very, very sad. Um, my my sense, and this is coming from somebody, you know, I, I didn't know David too well, mm -hmm. but definitely drew a lot of inspiration from his work. Mm -hmm. um, and I would guess that the work that he has already done um, has probably been uh, underappreciated and will, will um, you know, in, I don't know, five years from now, we'll be like looking back onto his work and being like, oh my gosh, he was like so, so ahead of everyone else. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, maybe, uh, you know, it's, I can give a little bit of my um, uh, experience with work that he uh, he has put out. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think David is one of these people who is able to work in any area of uh, quantum. Mm -hmm. He's done some work in quantum foundations, quantum error correction, quantum algorithms. Um, and like, personally, I have drawn a lot of inspiration from his work in quantum error correction. Hmm. So during my PhD was when I was first trying to learn about quantum error correction. And um, I found it very uh, difficult to grasp kind of the like kernel of the idea. And, you know, I was trying to read from Nielsen and Chuang, mm -hmm. Daniel Gottesman's thesis, um, this paper on the surface code. And, it just seemed like an ad hoc um, method to me. I couldn't really understand what the the nugget was behind quantum error correction. And it wasn't until reading some work by David Poulan that I then was able to see the mathematical structure, um, which uh, was really like, behind a lot of these uh or unifying a lot of these ideas in quantum error correction yeah so i just remember feeling like oh man like <laughs> this guy's so good at describing things um, yeah you know why don't uh maybe nielsen and chuang should add a little section describing <laughs> error correction like this um yeah and then um after my phd as a postdoc i was doing some work related to quantum error correction. Okay. And at around the same time, David came out with some really interesting work um, showing that like, hey, people in the field, right now you have some methods to try to pr predict how a given quantum error correction scheme will perform. Mm-hmm. Meaning like, okay, some, uh, some features of the noise on the quantum system, yeah. how does that translate into um, how low the error rates will be 
after you do some quantum error correction. Okay. And David basically came in and showed that these methods are uh, not going to, these methods are not great at predicting the performance of quantum error correcting codes. Interesting. And so you can imagine this having having a lot of um, uh, consequences for the next, I don't know, 10 years and 15, 20 years in quantum computing okay. as we're trying to reduce error on quantum computers and we're trying to design methods um, to do so. Mm-hmm. We want to be able to uh, predict how well those methods will perform. Um, like, how would you know if the method you're developing is good or not in practice? Right. And so David introduced this really interesting idea that maybe you will need a quantum computer itself to help you do those predictions. Mm. So it's kind of like, um, you know, using a smaller quantum computer to help you predict how quantum error correction on a larger computer quantum computer will perform interesting um and so i feel like this this idea um probably has a bright future um especially once useful quantum error correction starts to come around yeah definitely Um, yeah probably i don't know over the next 20 years we'll be (laughs) hearing a lot about quantum error correction yeah 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 and um, oh, go ahead. No, that go ahead. Okay, um, I was just gonna say, like, what I've read, the the few things I've read, all say that he was a an excellent communicator um, of the understood both aspects, the really deep technical side, as well as how to explain it to people who don't have as technical of a background. Um, which I definitely, I find inspiration in that because that's a bit of what I'm trying to do with this podcast. So yeah, I think it's a cool legacy to leave behind. Uh, I remember seeing uh, a talk by David in Aspen a few years ago (laughs) and it was to a room full of uh, Aspenites. I don't know, people (laughs) living in Aspen, um, just interested in science and quantum computing. Mm-hmm. And I remember he had these like yeah, elaborate uh, analogies to uh, quantum mechanics somehow using hockey um, <laughs> and like showing like the double slit experiment, how that would actually play out if you were a hockey goalie or something, uh-huh. something crazy like that. <laughs> um, and I re- remember finding myself being like, you know, uh, very analytical, like, okay, does this analogy really hold up if you really push it? And then being like, he's just getting people excited about about quantum. This is in, this is actually incredible right now. Yeah, um, and he did it in a really fun way. Yeah, that's awesome. Science communication and just getting people more interested in learning about things that you know traditionally are uh, for nerds and. <laughs> If you're if you know about quantum computing, you must be really smart. Um, I I definitely I'll be I'll be the first uh, counter example there. <laughs> yeah, I definitely appreciate that. That's awesome. Um, sad that 
he's no longer with us, but awesome to know what he has done in the time that he was. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. At least personally, I'm, I'm, I feel like charged to try to uh, dig more into what he's, he's been thinking about and try to help carry this on. I'm sure a lot of other people will. I think there are a lot of, a lot of nuggets to be found. Yeah, definitely. And uh, you sent me an article about him, um, which I'll have linked to in the show notes. That's a good read. I recommend it, um, reading about it. Um, But yeah, if we can, unless you have something else you want to say, we could move on to our last topic of the day. Sure. Okay. So the last one is um, actually surprisingly a... It happened this week, which I never do on this podcast. I don't do new news, um, but this one is. Uh, there's a there's a new proof out of some people from IBM that demonstrates a quantum advantage even for noisy quantum computers. So my understanding of this is that there's a new proof, and essentially it says if we restrict quantum computers and classical computers in the same way. Um, under If we try to run this algorithm on both of them, the quantum computer will beat out the classical computer every time. Is that is that a good uh, description of what's going on here? Yeah, yeah. And I, I will say that, um, like, fear not, you, this is actually not such new news. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this, I think this happens happens a lot. Um, you know, so the the IBM team posted this on the archive. I think like last April. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> or I don't know, maybe even before that. Um, but then, yeah, right. It takes some time for um, the peer review process to happen until the article finally comes out in a published version. Right. Uh, which is when a lot many more people. Uh, and appearing about it, you know, through, um, through the press. Yep. Okay. Um, don't worry. You're <laughs> my, still covering old news. My record is safe. My, uh, my reputation <laughs> has been upheld we're good. <laughs> we're good. Um, yeah. And I, your, your description, your description is right. Um, yeah, I can say some, some context for me on this. Yeah. On this work is that, um, in 2016, around the time when I started my postdoc, um, the Google group had recently come out with their um, big VQE experiment. Um, IBM's quantum computers were steadily improving. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, these devices were pretty limited. And I guess limited in this way that we were talking about before, which is they weren't able to carry out very deep quantum circuits. Right. Um, so, yeah, I remember um, going to some seminars at M- MIT and a big part of the discussion was like, hey, what can we do with so-called shallow depth quantum circuits? So there's a lot of chatter about like, okay, can we can we come up with some um, um, algorithms that are suited for these computers that can't run deep circuits? Um, and then maybe about a year later, um, IBM came out with some work um, that answered some pretty 
uh, deep and interesting questions. So uh, I guess these questions were, um, could you uh, come up with a task um, that a constant depth quantum circuit could solve, but as you consider bigger and bigger instances of, of the problem, a classical circuit would need to grow in depth. Hmm. Um, and also maybe, maybe going back uh, like in history a little bit, mm-hmm. um, I think a long, a long uh, held question in quantum algorithms is to try to understand what is the role that this phenomenon of quantum entanglement plays in making quantum computers useful. Mm. I think that, yeah, that question is uh, today not so well understood. Yeah. Um, but this, uh, this work that IBM came out with, maybe it was in 2017, uh, which was the, the predecessor to the uh, article that, that you're bringing up, mm-hmm. answered both of these questions. So they, they came up with this, um, like I think it's called the hidden linear function problem okay they showed that the a quantum computer can solve this problem using very using constant depth circuits hmm. but then the interesting part was that they were able to prove that uh, a classical computer um you know putting some uh restrictions on how um the, the logic gates of the computer work would need to have um a growing depth um in order to keep solving problems as they grow, as the problem instances grow. Okay. Um, But what I find most interesting about this work is, at least for me, it was the first example, which where you could like, you could look under the hood and see exactly the role that quantum entanglement was playing in enabling the quantum computer to beat the classical computer. Hmm. Um, and maybe the, the short explanation I could, I could give is that yeah. um, this phenomenon of non-locality, uh-huh. um, which entanglement allows for, grants the quantum computer some uh, coordination between input and output that's expensive for the classical computer to create. Interesting. Um, so yeah, I really, I really um, admired that that first work, and I think you know many, many people in the field felt it was very important. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess there was a, a open question after that work, which is, if you start, I, I guess this is a, a running theme in this <laughs> um, in this interview. But if you introduce some noise, yeah, into the problem. Um, can you still show that the um, quantum computer can solve this uh, problem in constant depth, but the the classical computer cannot? Mm-hmm. So that was the problem that was solved um, by this more recent work. Hmm. Um, and so they they prove that you can you can construct a quantum error correction scheme. Okay. Um, which only incurs a uh, constant depth 
um, circuit to carry it to carry it out, um, and allows you to then reduce the noise enough um, so that you can um, still um, you know solve this problem in constant depth and um, with high enough probability um, compared to the the classical computer. Yeah, that's interesting. The so the the fact that they have it. Um, constant depth means that uh, for the error correcting means that no matter how many qubits you have in this experiment and I believe there was something about a grid in this most recent one um, no matter how many squares on your grid you have it's the same circuit depth for the um, uh, for the quantum error correction part of the circuit Right. Yeah. Both the algorithm and the quantum error correction overhead. Interesting. And so then does it, I know that you can try to get like in a, in a superconducting qubit, you can try to get your pulses at exactly the same time, but it might not happen. Um, Is there, is there anything there where it does actually have to grow in the amount of time it takes um, in practice because you have to actually control the qubits um, and you'll have to do more operations on all of those qubits, even if the depth itself isn't increasing? Oh, man. Great. That is such a good question, Ethan. So, okay, if I'm, <laughs> if I'm understanding your question, you're saying that, hey, wait a second. If you tried to do this in practice, maybe... Uh, the quantum computer is unable to say implement in parallel yeah. gates that in the abstract version you could implement in parallel. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's, um, that's almost, almost certainly the case. Um, okay. But ab- oh, go ahead. Uh, I was just saying, okay. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, as for how, um, that would end up uh, increasing the depth of the, the like um, in practice circuit. Um, mm-hmm. That probably depends a lot on, on the hardware. I can imagine some yeah. cases where um, it, it would cause the depth to, to grow as you consider bigger problems. And I can imagine some cases where um, it wouldn't need to. Oh, that's a great question. Thanks. Out of that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so the the other thing is it's a it's more of an apples to apples comparison. Um, so there's this there's this one part in that medium Kiskit post that says that it is a comparison between the two different computing methods, the rigorous proof of quantum bits, even noisy quantum bits outperforming classical bits in the same race. So that makes it sound like you're limited to however many classical bits versus however many quantum bits. I can already hear the quantum computing skeptics now going, Mm. this doesn't matter. We're not going to have the same number of bits. We've got billions of transistors in our phones. But that's not what's happening here, right? Mm. Um, Right. So I guess this, yeah, okay, that's a great question. Right, so in this case, um, right, this is a problem that 
um, isn't able to just be uh, like parallelized. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you, you, I think you shouldn't be able to just like throw more classical bits at it. Um, okay. I guess we get back to this, uh, like what the entanglement on the quantum computer is granting you. And it's this type of like coordination between um, like what you do and what you, what you get out. Um, that's, that takes, uh, takes some time on the, on the classical, um, on the classical computer. But I think okay. maybe those skeptics do have, uh, you know, there is some merit to this um, in considering like the practicality of this method. Mm-hmm. Um, so, right. It might be the case that, um, you know, the time or resources that go into solving this problem on a quantum computer uh, are like way, way more than, you know, what you could do, I don't know, on a pocket calculator or something. Right. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I think that's a, um, that's a a valid, valid question. Like kind of like if you tighten the bolts and do proper accounting for say like time resources, then, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you could ask a question like, well, how big of a problem would you need to consider um, for the quantum computer to uh, to beat the classical computer in time, not just yeah. depth? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. probably something will will work this out eventually, um, mm-hmm. and maybe it could lead to another um, you know another big experiment similar to the Google experiment. Mm, yeah quantum supremacy yeah. experiment definitely a couple a couple interviews down the line i'll have the author of that paper on <laughs> oh awesome awesome yeah um okay so that brings us to my last questions that i ask all of the guests the first one is what do you see as the biggest challenge in quantum computing right now um I'd say the biggest challenge is um, getting getting more people um, uh, into the field in um, in a good way, and I think you know a lot of people are doing great great work um, to try to boost the workforce development. You know, I know IBM has been doing a lot of work in that direction. Um, yeah. We're trying to do more at Zapata as well, but. Um, and I think a big a big part of that is us being able to clearly communicate the problems that are important and the problems that we're trying to solve. Because I, I I don't know I feel like there are just so yeah. many so many bright people out there, um, and <laughs> there are so many problems that still need to be solved in quantum computing. So how do you how do you make that um, how do you make that match? Yeah. So. Maybe that's more of a, a, a societal problem. I don't know if that's what, <laughs> what you have in mind. No, that's oh. that's definitely something that I hear from a lot of my a lot of the guests. They talk about education and increasing the number of people who are interested. So I definitely I can see that that is a big challenge. Um, and then the last question is, what is the most promising like the the biggest promise or the most promising potential outcome? you see coming out of quantum computing in 
let's say somewhere in the next 10 years? Mm. Um, I am hopeful uh, that in the next 10 years, um, okay, sure, maybe we'll see some... um, some like use for quantum computers. Maybe they'll solve some commercially interesting problems. Um, Mm -hmm. What I am more excited about and more hopeful for is that we will make some tremendous progress on understanding like what the heck it is that we're doing. Um, (laughs) I'm, I'm very excited to, you know, in 10 years look back and be like, Oh my gosh, like, we were thinking about this all wrong in 2020. Um, you know, some 19 year old, like, you know, undergrad student came up with this uh, new way to think about how quantum computing works. And it just unlocked uh, a whole host of problems that quantum computers could solve. So I'm really, really excited for, for um, some big insights like that. Yeah. And, Definitely. Hopeful that will happen. And I guess that gets back to, um, you know, trying to um, be better educators, have more podcasts mm-hmm. that get people excited <laughs> about computing. Yeah, uh, hopefully not podcasts. Don't steal my audience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Peter, thanks for coming on the show. It's been awesome talking to you. I think this is the longest interview I've ever had, which just shows oh, the the depth and the, the just a great technical discussion all around. Oh, thanks, Ethan. No, this is super fun. Thanks for having me. So I didn't really have questions or corrections. I do have some things to talk about. Um, The first one being that Peter wanted me to leave in him not knowing about Schumacher compression, not really being able to describe it on the spot. Um, The reason was, so he's a really cool guy, and we both agreed that um, people listening to the podcast could learn a lot from the fact that um, even Peter Johnson, the lead research scientist at a cool quantum computing startup, doesn't know everything there is to possibly know about quantum computing. Because one, that shows how broad the field is, and two, it's just a good lesson that you don't have to have all of the answers all of the time. It's okay to say, I don't know. Um, Also, to his credit, he followed up after the interview and sent me a good explanation. Um, He just needed a little refresher. But I definitely found that helpful for myself, and I hope hearing that can encourage other people. The other thing I wanted to get to was that I got some feedback, or rather a compliment, via email from Mike Diverti. Um, He was keen on me saying that it was a compliment and not feedback. Uh, He told me that my podcast is, quote, clear, concise, and conversational, and that everyone can learn quite a bit about quantum computing, unquote. Um, Mike, thank you so much for the kind words. Uh, He did tell me a bit more, but I'm not going to go into details. Suffice it to say, he doesn't have a quantum computing background, but he does find the podcast approachable nonetheless. Um, I really appreciate that. Um, Feedback of all sorts. If I'm doing something wrong, if there's something bad with the audio and you've got something that you want to share with me, please let me know. Um, I really appreciate whatever feedback I get. And speaking of feedback, I still have four free sample codes available for Johan Vos's book, Quantum Computing for Developers. Um, if you haven't listened to that episode, uh, it was a really good interview where that I did with Johan Vos. And, um, one of those codes went to Mike for feedback. Um, if you send me feedback, you get a free sample code for 
uh, quantum computing for developers. So yeah, you can reach out to me on minds at one Ethan Hansen, uh, email one Ethan Hansen at protonmail.com, smoke signals, anchor voice messages, carrier pigeons, whatever works. Um, links to some of those in the description. If you're going to send me a smoke signal or a carrier pigeon, uh, that's on you for figuring out how to get it to me. All right, as always, we have links in the show notes to all the things that Peter and I talked about, including the Zapata video about the new paper and the new paper itself as an archive link. Um, if you want to learn more about what's going on at Zapata, I actually wrote a blog post for them. Um, in case you don't know, I am working there as an intern. Um, and if you just like Ethan Hansen content and want a bit more of my wit and sass, there's plenty of that in this blog post, so check that out in the description. Um, another thing is I'm starting a gather.town um, instance. It's typically just called gather, um, but specifically I'm doing it for quantum computing now and for people who are interested in quantum computing in general. And I'm just going to do a meetup on there uh, at uh, 1800 PDT, which is 100 UTC. Uh, there's a like converter calculator in the show notes if you want to make sure that you get the time right and you want to show up that would be great if people like this and they want to you know sort of hang out in that format more often i will i'll try to turn this into a recurring thing but yeah thursday uh, <laughs> sorry thursday specifically august 6th so not super not a lot of warning here but i'm excited to see how many people show up and yeah just come hang out if you'd like to support me so I can make more and you know better episodes, support me on Anchor. There's a link in the show notes along with the link to Anchor voice messages. If you want to send me some IOTA, reach out to me and I'll get you an address. Quantum Computing Now is produced in partnership with TheQuantumDaily.com. The Quantum Daily aims to cut through the technical jargon and the overhyped fluff pieces to deliver quality, comprehensible content about quantum computing. If you enjoy this podcast and would also like text resources, be sure to check out TheQuantumDaily.com, which I've linked to in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and I'll have the next episode out when I get to it.